0: Hello, 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 hello. Good evening, you wonderful, wonderful geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Did you miss me? Sorry, I disappeared for a couple of weeks there. That wasn't the plan. Uh, The plan was that even though I was going to the middle of nowhere in Scotland, I knew that for once I would have good enough internet connections at least a couple of times to be able to record something while I was up there and then upload it so that the geeking with Destination Venus experience would be uninterrupted. And, for once, the internet did not let me down. The weather did. You see, I know that part of Scotland that we were in very, very well. I go there a lot. It is where the Destination Venus Secret Highland Lair is located, indeed. And so, although we weren't going to the Secret Highland Lair this time, I figured, yeah, the weather will be fine. However, I was recording in one of two places. I could either record in our caravan or in my car. And um, what both of those locations in terms of recording have in common is that they are basically little metal boxes. And if you try recording inside a little metal box in a rainstorm, the audio that you get is completely unusable. Believe me, I tried. And um, I should have figured that out, really. And I should have realised that if you're in the Highlands in the end of September, yeah, there's a very good chance of rain. I just hadn't expected kind of constant. And when it wasn't raining, and there were actually... Some points, you may have seen the videos that I posted on our social media. Uh, There were some points where it did not only did not rain, but was in fact quite sunny. The problem with those moments is that during those times, it was audibly quite windy. And again, the audio that was recorded was just not usable. I I did spend some time trying to clean it up and uh, it was not cleanable. And I'm really annoyed about that because, of course, while I've been away. An awful lot has happened, and we'll get to that in a mo. But, first of all, I hope you enjoyed the rerun. If you're listening to this on Harrogate Community Radio, you had a rerun of uh, a two-part Geeks at the Gates from way back in, uh, I think, 2021, January 21, I think that was originally done, featuring myself, Hat, and guest geeks, Tina and Simon. I have to say, we've had some fairly positive feedback, so... Uh, I I, I hope you enjoyed it. Anyway, uh, I think probably what we need to do is get straight on and get caught up on a little bit of the news. This news really changes everything. And for once, the jingle is not even hyperbole because this news really does change everything, at least in one tiny little corner of Hollywood. The writer's strike is done. It's over, they've sorted it, and I honestly, what has happened is what I said would happen, and therefore, this really could have been sorted weeks ago. In essence, the writers have got pretty much everything they were asking for. And, you yeah. know, given that initially the studios were saying that the writers were being completely unreasonable, and it was simply not possible to grant any of their demands, well, we can see who was negotiating in good faith and who was not, basically. The fight itself is not over. I am still not talking about Hollywood productions because the actors' strike, the SAG-AFTRA strike, is still ongoing an agreement there has not been reached, although I think some fairly positive noises are beginning to come out of the woodwork. Really. Really, I'm hoping for a speedy resolution to that dispute. Because again, what the actors are asking for is not in any way unreasonable. And it's possible. There are some jurisdictions where residuals on streaming are already a thing. So if it's doable in some jurisdictions, it's doable. But for the meantime, whilst we note with some joy that progress has been made there and that the writers are back at their keyboards. We continue to support the strike of the actors and we continue to be union strong. Now, the other thing that's happened is honestly huge, potentially huge and really, really instructive as far as how not to treat your writers goes. This isn't actually directly connected to the writer's strike, but I think it is tangentially. Because it's to do with how the people who publish intellectual property deal with the people who write that intellectual property. If you are outside the comics bubble, and you probably are, then you will not probably have heard either of Bill Willingham or Fables. This, frankly, is your loss because Fables is brilliant. Willingham is known to be a difficult character, shall we say that, before we get into the story, Uh, but he's also a brilliant, brilliant writer, and if you haven't heard his name and you don't know Fables, can I suggest that you get yourself to your nearest comic shop and check out Fables, unless your nearest comic shop is Destie's, because honestly at Destination of Venus we are huge fans of Fables, but we have not been able to get the collected editions for a while. We are continuing to try and get them, although we've kind of slacked in our efforts a little bit since this story broke. All reasons that are to do with supporting Bill Willingham and not wanting to put money from this particular property into DC's coffers right now. So, what is, ha- what is happening? Who's Bill Willingham? What's Fables? What's going on? Well, glad you asked. Fables is a comic book that's been running for a little over 20 years on and off. Created, uh, certainly written by Bill Willingham and drawn by Mark Buckingham. It is the story of Fables. That is to say, the characters from Fable, from Fairy tale. Oh! Willingham did basically was to take fairy tale characters, Cinderella, Jack and the Beanstalk, Snow White, the Big Bad Wolf, Hansel and Gretel. Oh yeah. The stories that you are familiar with from childhood. Those stories, those characters. And imagine that all of those characters were real. And they that they all had their own lands, their own realms. The realms of fable. Imagine then A war. An evil force driving the Fables from their lands, conquering the lands of Fable. And what would happen if some of those characters found their way to New York? That's basically Fables. The idea in, in the story is a bunch of the fairy tale characters had escaped to our world, the mundane world. The Mundi world, as the fables would put it. And they lived in two places. Those who could pass for human lived in a place they called Fable Town, which was actually a huge medieval style castle in the middle of New York. Now, because that they were fables and therefore able to do magic, this castle did not appear to the Mundis, to the humans, as a big castle. It just looked like a New York brownstone until you went into it. And there the fables lived. Those who couldn't pass for human, Humpty Dumpty, for example, who is a giant egg, Mother Goose, who is a goose, and so on, they lived on the farm, a country estate in upstate New York, which was, you know, nice and secluded, and, you know, if they needed to pass for farm animals, they could, basically, was the idea of the farm. The fables were nominally ruled by Old King Cole, who was the mayor of Fable 10 uh, security was handled by uh, the big bad wolf known as Bigby to his friends and so on and so on and so on and so on. And it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It ran from, Oh, when did Fable start? About 1999, early to, uh, 2000, maybe. Uh, and it ran for about 15 years and then it went on hiatus for quite a long time. And then it recently in the last couple of years came back with the original numbering and everything. And it's great. I really love fables. It's a very adult retelling. Yeah, Cinderella is now a super spy. Ansel and Gretel were utterly terrifying. Uh, Frau Tottenkinder, uh, who is the witch from Hansel and Gretel, was suitably opaque and enigmatic and just a little bit scary. And so on and so on. And so on. It, was, it was really, really good. Uh, the things they did, the, the way that Pinocchio and Geppetto were used was particularly, I thought, great. I'm not saying too much about it because I don't want to spoiler it. I want you to read this stuff. Now, one of the things that Fables became well known for and which continued when Fables relaunched was its irregularity of publication. Shall we put it like that? To a retailer like me, it was really annoying. You never quite knew when Fables was going to arrive. It managed to stick to a monthly schedule for about, I don't know, a month and then just was the shipping was all over the place now i will be honest i had assumed that this was down to the creative team being really really bad at doing deadlines they would not be the only creative team in comics that had this issue and because the quality of the work is so high i was prepared to kind of go yeah okay mark buckingham might not have finished drawing it yet that's fine i'll wait oh not out yet well, maybe Willingham is being a little bit tardy finishing the script. It's going to be great. We'll chill on that. But, you know, it was a thing. Turns out, actually, some stuff has been going on in the background that is not good. So on the 15th of September, which is just after I went away, I was really cross about the timing of this. Bill Willingham put out a press release. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, you can find it on Bill Willingham's Substack. If you just Google um, Bill Willingham Fables Press Release, you can find the original. So, you know, you don't have to listen to me read the whole thing. But this is how it starts. As of now, 15th September 2023, the comic book property called Fable, including all related Fables, spin offs, and characters, is now in the public domain. What was once wholly owned by Bill Willingham is now owned by everyone for all time. It's done. And as most experts will tell you, once done, it cannot be undone. Takebacks are neither contemplated nor possible. So what Willingham is saying, he's basically saying, I own the characters. And because I own the characters, I am putting those characters into the public domain. Anybody who wants to use my versions, the Fables versions of all of the characters that have appeared in Fables, I own them. I am saying you can use them. Do with them as you please. You cannot be sued by DC Comics for any of that. Um, We'll get to that in a second. Uh, The question is, why has he done that? Well, he answers that later in his press release. He says, when I first signed my creator-owned publishing contract with DC Comics, the company was run by honest men and women of integrity who, for the most part, interpreted the details of that agreement fairly and above board. When problems inevitably came up, we worked it out like reasonable men and women. Since then, over the span of 20 years or so, those people have left or been fired to be replaced by a revolving door of strangers of no measurable integrity, who now choose to interpret every facet of our contract in ways that only benefit DC Comics and its owner companies. At one time, the Fable's properties were in good hands, and now, by virtue of attrition and employee replacement, the Fable's properties have fallen into bad hands. Since I can't afford to sue DC to force them to live up to the letter and spirit of our long-time agreements, since even winning such a suit would take ridiculous amounts of money out of my pocket and years out of my life, I'm 67 years old and don't have the years to spare, I've decided to take a different approach and fight them in a different arena, inspired by the principles of asymmetric warfare. The one thing in our contract the the DC lawyers can't contest or reinterpret to their own benefit is that I am the sole owner of the intellectual property. I can sell it or give it away to whomever I want. I choose to give it away to everyone. If I couldn't prevent fables from falling into bad hands, at least this way I can arrange that it also falls into many good hands. Since I truly believe that there are still more good people in the world than bad ones, I count it as a form of victory. Now, his statement goes on. Uh, He asserts very, very clearly that he definitely owns the intellectual property and that therefore he can give that intellectual property away. D.C. has published a statement. Essentially saying, oh, we beg to differ. And I'm going to say that if you have any designs on using any of the Fables characters in the foreseeable future, expect a cease and desist letter from DC's lawyers very, very quickly. What I think is striking is the epic level of snark in that statement. That DC used to be run by men and women of integrity, and now it is not. I don't know, I genuinely don't know if Willingham has any particular individual in mind here, but he is clearly very angry about the way he and his creations have been treated by DC. And honestly, if you know anything about the, the recent history of DC Comics and its ownership, I'm actually not surprised. DC DC has always been the most establishment of the established comics companies. It's always been the most small-c conservative. It's always been the one that took the fewest risks. It's also always been the one that didn't really want to change the way things were done. But it's also been the one that, paradoxically, was the most innovative Uh, fables when it first came out was a a vertigo publication and the vertigo imprint of dc was always rock and roll it was always punk it was always oh there were rules really well stuff them that was always the, the vertigo attitude i think it's telling that when new owners took over dc a few years ago one of the first things that went was vertigo i don't think the corporate overlords that own the people who own the people who own dc comics particularly liked that aspect i think what they wanted was an ip factory so that they would have the right to wonder woman and batman and superman and all of those characters that are already well known that they can put on lunchboxes and make coin off even if they're not making money selling comics. Fables was never that. The fact that Fables uses characters who are effectively public domain anyway. I mean, if you want to write a story about Cinderella, you can. You couldn't, and actually probably still shouldn't, uh, until recently, write a story about Bill Willingham's version of Cinderella. But if you wanted to do a Cinderella story or a Snow White story, honestly, no one could stop you because nobody owns Snow White, mate. And so, I imagine that one of the things that's been happening with Fables at DC since the New Overlord became the New Overlord is trying to work out how to protect that IP and how to make money off that IP. And I suspect Bill Willingham was not into that. And therefore, I suspect he's been at loggerheads since the people who he was initially working with have left. What happens now? Is interesting. Uh, I don't think there actually can be any particular argument that Bill Willingham owned the IP. It was a creator-owned property. DC definitely own the existing Fables comics. You can't just reprint those without DC say so. I wonder what DC will do with those comics now. I suspect they might put them on the back burner and try and forget about them for a bit. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Uh, the, as I say, the reason it ties into the writer's strike ending is it does kind of underline the attitude and the lack of respect that the corporate owners of the publishers of the writers had for the writers. You know, it's, it's, it's almost as though the people who own the companies kind of thought that these stories wrote themselves. They don't. You need a writer and you need a writer on your side. As I say, I have heard stories that suggest that Bill Willingham is a difficult character to work with. But are those stories told by people who found Bill Willingham difficult to work with because they haven't shown him the proper respect? I don't know, but I, 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 sus- I suspect slightly more strongly than I did that that might actually be the case. I'm going to watch this one with interest because what happens here could have huge implications for who owns the IP and how the IP is treated in a number of cases where the creators of a creator-owned IP have previously been working with big publishers. I suspect an awful lot of people actually are watching this story with interest. So as and when there are developments, I will let you know. There actually haven't been any over the last couple of weeks, except that DC has very clearly said that as far as it is concerned, Fables is not in the public domain and you'd all better take heed of that. So, as I say, we will see. In other news, Destination Venus has officially left Twitter, which continues its slide into whatever it's becoming now. Uh, It's a bit of a pit really now, isn't it? If you're still on there, then... Yeah, I, I admire your fortitude because it's, it's rapidly becoming uh, uh, a deeply unpleasant place to be. Um, for the record, Destination Venus can now be found on uh, Facebook, Threads, Instagram, Hive, Spoutable, and Blue Sky. Blue Sky, I think, is rapidly becoming our favourite place to be, although that might be because it's still quite a it's still wait well, still invitation only so the people on blue sky at the moment are kind of curating themselves people are only inviting people they like and so that's keeping some of the less savory characters who have ruined twitter away how long that will last i am not sure uh in the meantime i have at least one blue sky in invitation code available if uh, anybody wants one, first come, first served and all of that info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to send requests. And as more invites become available periodically, uh, as and when I get more, if people have asked me for them and I have, at times when I haven't got any, I will keep a list. So if anybody wants to get on to the Blue Sky, give us a shout. Uh, probably lots of other things have happened, uh, but the two stories I've already covered have taken me just over 20 minutes. So perhaps... I should move on okay so we will move on and we will move on to a review and I know wait I'm not reviewing film and TV yet you're quite right I'm not but I have been to the theatre and because I've been to the theatre and because it was geeky I figure Quite important to review it. Really? Uh, specifically, uh, I went in the company of former Geek at the Gate, founding Geek at the Gate, Steve, uh, also, of course, the Geek Pubmaster himself, Steve Dempster, uh, to see Yippee Kaye at the Harrogate Theatre uh, last Monday, Monday the 2nd of October. Now, I wasn't expecting to go. Steve found himself with an extra ticket and very kindly invited me. I am so glad he did. Uh, If you are listening to this show, there is a very high chance that one of your favourite Christmas movies is Die Hard. There's a remote chance that you don't think that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, but if you think that, you're entitled to your opinion, but your opinion is incorrect. Please don't at me. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is no place for such controversies. It is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. I, like many other geeks, do not even consider it to be Christmas until Hans Gruber falls off the Nakatomi building. Spoilers for a movie that's what? Gotta be more than 30 years old at this point. So what is Yippee-Ki-Yay? Well, uh, Yippee-Ki-Yay is a one-person show which is currently touring the UK, and I think going to be touring in America as well. Uh, It was written by Richard Marsh, uh, who has won multiple poetry and comedy awards. He's a fringe first winner. Uh, He won the London Poetry Slam. Uh, He won the BBC Audio Drama Best Scripted Comedy Drama Award. Uh, He's not, as his website claims, a New York cop. That is untrue. But he is obsessed with Die Hard. Now, I don't believe there's anybody who is listening to this that doesn't know the plot of Die Hard. If you don't, honestly, to enjoy this show, you don't need to have seen it. There were some people in the audience on Monday Night who had not, or at least who claimed they had not. Uh, But if you haven't, uh, just to bring you up to speed, Die Hard is a Bruce Willis film from the late 80s. They made some sequels. After Die Hard 2, you can probably forget about them. In which... New York cop John McClane, played by Bruce Willis, goes to visit his wife, who has sort of left him. She's low-key left. His wife, Holly, has low-key left. And actually, you know what? It's a Christmas movie. His wife's called Holly, and I hadn't made that connection until literally Monday night. I know. I know. I've seen this film probably more than a thousand times at this point, and yeah. OK. <sighs> anyway. John McLean goes to visit his wife, who's kind of left him for Christmas. He goes to see her at her swanky L.A. office uh, where she works for the Nakatomi Corporation. And he's got a big chip on his shoulder. He wants his wife back. Basically, she's taken the kids to L.A., Uh, He kind of expected that she'd come back to New York with a tail between her legs. In fact, she's a huge success and he's got some humble pie to eat and he's struggling with that idea. And just after he arrives, the building is taken over by people who appear to be terrorists. One of the plot twists, spoilers for a movie that's 30 odd years old. One of the plot twists is, in fact, they are not terrorists, but... That's the situation as it presents itself. And John McClane is effectively locked in a building full of terrorists and has to deal with them. It's it's a great 80s action movie. If you haven't seen it, what have you been doing? It's a it's probably one of the best action movies of the 80s, actually. Um, And honestly, I'm from the 80s. I do not say that lightly. anyway. Richard Mush, who wrote this, he didn't perform it. Actually, it was performed by Daryl Bailey um, in Harrogate this week. But it doesn't matter. It's still a brilliant show. He was obsessed with this film. And it's kind of the way he met his wife. And so he wrote this play, play, one-man show, monologue. It's that kind of thing. In which he tells the story not only of die hard the movie in in doing so he imitates brilliantly um many of the characters uh he plays holly Gennaro, stroke mclean he plays john mclean he plays argyle the driver he plays hans Gruber. he plays carl the terrorist um it's very 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 it's aided and abetted by some teddy bears it's very very good um He tells the story of Die Hard. He also tells the story of his relationship with his wife. Uh, I I presume that story to be true. I don't actually know it to be true. And it actually doesn't matter. What matters is that this is a show which is a laugh out loud funny. Just utterly hilarious. I don't actually laugh out loud at all that much. But there was something about this show. It wasn't just the laughter of recognition. It was the laughter of joining in and sharing in loving the absurdity of this ridiculous 80s action movie. Because honestly, the more you think about the plot of Die Hard, the more ridiculous it becomes. And actually, that's part of the point. Uh, it's got really interesting. I'd, I'd, I'm talking now as a former techie. I used to run Sound and Lights on... Uh, Various theatrical productions, and I loved the sound design. The sound and lighting work beautifully to enhance the show. Uh, It's a very simple show that uses some very clever and very effective stagecraft to make its point. And it invites—it's not an interactive experience as such, but it does invite the audience not to join in. It's not an audience participation thing. Don't worry about that. It it invites the audience to go along with it, I think is perhaps the best way to put it. It takes the audience for a ride in which they are part of the experience. Uh, You might even score yourself an After Eight if you're sitting in the front. And honestly, what more reason could there be to go to the theatre? It's a very, very good production. It's possibly my favourite thing I've seen at the Harrogate Theatre since the reduced Shakespeare Company did all the best books. Uh, and that must be well over 15 years ago at this point. Uh, so it is on tour. Uh, there aren't show notes for this episode. Again, sorry. Um, but if you go to YKYLIVE, all one word, so that's com. You will get to the page uh, and you will see that they have dates throughout October. Um, It's Thursday night, so currently they're in the Lake District. Um, It's currently, as you listen to this, the show is being performed at the Old Laundry Theatre in Windermere. Uh, I I actually really like the Old Laundry. Anyway, um, Monday the 9th of October, it's at it's uh, the new Walsley Theatre in Ipswich. It then goes on the Thursday, the 12th, to the Garrick Theatre in Lichfield. Uh, it's at the Playwright Theatre in Scunthorpe on the 13th of October. Uh, Saturday, the 14th, it's at the Rep in Birmingham. Uh, Monday, the 16th of October, it's at the, Br- the Br- uh, Borough Theatre in Abergavenny. Uh, and then it moves to the Americas. Uh, in November, it's got dates in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, in a, a place I can't pronounce, in New York. In Indianapolis, in Milwaukee, in Denver, uh, in in Boston, and then on Thursday the 11th of January, it's at the Royal and Durngate Theatre in Northampton. So you have chances to see it. And uh, honestly, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it is worth travelling to see. Okay, if you missed it in Harrogate, then you haven't missed your only chance. Okay, Ipswich is not that far. Scunthorpe is not that far. And I am telling you, it is worth the trip. Make a night of it. I'm not entirely sure I can recommend you a good hotel in Scunthorpe. I'm not entirely sure anyone can recommend you a good hotel in Scunthorpe. I am telling you, it's worth going to see the play. I mean, I'm sure that once this particular run is over, it will be shown somewhere else. I can't see this sort of fading away. Uh, I'm sure there will be other productions of it. And I, I, I would go and see it again if I had the chance. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And actually, while we are here, can I do a quick shout out to the Harrogate Theatre? Because that is a horribly underappreciated institution within this fine, mad little town of ours. It's not a big theatre, but it gets some excellent, excellent acts and shows. Uh, I have seen... Several really good plays at the Harrogate Theatre. I have seen some great evenings of comedy, some great one-person shows, uh, and there's a lot coming up. So I would encourage you to uh, also check out harrogatetheatre.co.uk slash what's hyphen on slash to find out what's going on at the Harrogate Theatre because they've got some great stuff. There's, There's also a brilliant youth theatre that operates out of there. And, uh, you know, you might want to check that out, too, if you are of a junior persuasion. So huge thanks to Steve for inviting me and to the Harrogate Theatre for attracting such an awesome, awesome show. As I say, if you get a chance to go and see it, yippee Kaye is just a fantastic evening at the theatre. Cannot recommend it highly enough. And on that effusive praise, we will move on to some other stuff that's going on. Because there has been some fairly big news in the world of science. Because we have got two, count them, two new recipients of the Nobel Prize. Always big news in science, specifically in this case, uh, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which has been awarded to two scientists who developed the technology that led to the mRNA COVID vaccines. Now, they did not develop the mRNA COVID vaccines, but they did develop the technology that made not only those vaccines possible, but made it possible to get those vaccines created so quickly. One of the things that I keep hearing from anti-vax people is that the COVID vaccines specifically are suspicious because they were created so quickly. And normally it takes decades to produce a vaccine, which is true. Um, But two things I would point out. First of all, it normally takes decades to produce a vaccine because the issue is funding, not the ability to do things quickly. Most vaccines, I suspect, could be created relatively quickly, even from scratch, if multiple governments around the world were prepared to chuck huge amounts of money at them. That is not normally what happens. Making vaccines is actually not usually a hugely profitable thing, and when a science scientist or group of scientists have an idea, a hypothesis for a thing that might make a good vaccine, they normally have to shop it around all kinds of pharmaceutical companies to try and find one that will fund their research. And often they will get funding for a bit of research. They will exhaust that funding and then have to stop their research until they find another bit of funding to do the next bit of research. Another bit of funding to to fund the next trial. All that kind of thing. None of that was an issue with the COVID vaccines because multiple governments around the world were prepared to chuck in huge quantities of cash right now to get a solution. So that's one of the reasons why the COVID vaccines were produced so quickly. The other is the work of these two Nobel Prize recipients, Professors Catalin Carico and Drew Weissman, who shared the prize, because what they did long before the pandemic was work out a way to use mRNA, and I'm not a biologist, so I know vaguely what mRNA is. I don't really understand it. But they they developed a way to have mRNA as kind of like a, a starting point for multiple kinds of vaccine. So that when we needed to come up with a COVID vaccine quickly, they took their slightly unproven at that point mRNA technology and said, will this work here? And it did. Um The technology, the mRNA technology, was experimental before the pandemic, as I say, but it's now been given to millions of people around the world. Uh, It has protected millions of people around the world, not necessarily preventing them from getting COVID-19, but has certainly been protective against the the worst effects of COVID-19. As such, these two people can be said to have saved... at a very conservative estimate, without any attempt at hyperbole, these two people have saved tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, probably millions. Just think about that for a second. Um, these are these are scientists who have a massive negative body count. There are a huge number of people alive today who would not be were it not for their work, and the Nobel Prize Committee. Um, it's kind of reflected this. Uh, They, they, the Nobel Prize committee said, the laureates contributed to the unprecedented rate of vaccine development during one of the greatest threats to human health in modern times. Undoubtedly true. Um, Messenger ribonucleic acid or mRNA vaccines use a completely different approach to the way vaccines have normally been Created Traditional vaccine technology has always been based on taking dead or weakened versions of whatever you're vaccinating against, the virus or the bacterium, um, or by using fragments of the infectious agent to kind of essentially get your immune system used to the idea so that you've got antibodies ready to fight the full-blown real thing when it comes. mRNA vaccines don't do that. Um These two professors met in the early 1990s uh, when they were both working at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States. Uh, And mRNA at that stage was seen as, you know, a slightly weird thing to be into, a little bit of a backwater, slightly pointless. Um, Professor Weissman told the BBC that he would go to meetings and present what he was working on. And people would look at him and say, well, that's nice. But why don't you do something worthwhile? Because mRNA will never work. But um, he and Professor Calico kept at it. And, you know, the, the results are, are pretty clear. I've certainly received the mRNA vaccine twice now, I think. Have I had three? I've lost count of any jabs I've had. Um, their, their vaccine, an mRNA vaccine works. Um, by taking part of the genetic code of the virus um, and using that to create the vaccine, uh, which is injected into the patient. Hello, me and you, probably. Um, The vaccine then enters the cells and tells them to produce the coronavirus spike protein. The body's immune system then reacts to that, producing antibodies that activate uh, your T cells, which are part of your immune system, uh, to destroy cells with the spike protein. So if you are later exposed to coronavirus, you already have antibodies that can be triggered to fight the virus. That's what makes it so quick to get the vaccine here. Normally what you have to do is figure out what strain of virus you're using and then find a safe way to, to either to kill it or deactivate it in some way. They didn't have to do any of that. Okay, You, you can vi- almost build a vaccine to order using this technique, which means it's not just COVID. You can use this technique to produce vaccines against all kinds of such things, all kinds of infection, all kinds of disease, up to and including, we are told, cancer. Can you imagine a world where you can vaccinate people against cancer we already have um something approaching that um you get the uh, hpv vaccine in schools now uh which will protect you against cervical cancer if you are somebody with a cervix uh, but which isn't actually vaccinating you against the cancer there it's vaccinating you against the virus that is implicated in triggering that cancer so not quite the same thing this would actually be a vaccine against the cancer itself. Uh, It's a fascinating field and it is hugely important work. And I think it demonstrates actually the importance of being a geek and sticking to your guns. Okay, these two people were almost alone in their field being interested in messenger RNA. They, They were sure they had something. It turns out they were right. They couldn't have known that. So... We got the vaccines because they stuck to it. And I am struggling to think of an, a Nobel Prize winner in recent times who's deserved this honour more. So that's our our news for science this week. Uh, but it does mean, of course, that we have this week's wonderful woman of science. So we'll just go straight into that, shall we? I should be clear that by focusing on... Uh, I guess because somebody's bound to mention it, I should be clear, by focusing on Professor Kerricker, I am in no way diminishing Professor Wiseman's contribution here at all. But the segment is called Wonderful Women of Science. And so I am clearly going to focus on the person who best fits that description. How about that? Um, So come with me. So come with me. Back in time to 1955. Specifically, the 17th of January, 1955, and the town of, and forgive my pronunciation, Zolnok in Hungary. Um, this is where Katalin Kariko was born. She grew up in a town I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce in Hungary, in a small house with no running water, no refrigerator and no television. I know it's horrifying, isn't it? Not that unusual in Hungary at the time, I suspect. Her father was a butcher. Her mother was a bookkeeper. And during her primary school education, uh, Kariko already was excelling in science. Uh, She earned third place in Hungary. So not third place in her school, in her primary school, but third place in Hungary, in the whole country, in a biology competition. Um, she took her BSc in 1978 and her PhD in biochemistry in 1982, both from the University of uh, Sezeged. And again, forgive, forgive my Hungarian pronunciation. Uh, she worked with uh, Jenö Tomatz and continued with her postdoctoral research at the Institute of Biochemistry, Biological Research Centre, the BRC of Hungary, between. 1978 when she took that first uh, bachelor's degree and 1985 so after she completed her PhD uh, she was listed as an intelligence asset by the communist Hungarian secret police which is not a thing that anybody wears as a badge of honor and something that she says she was blackmailed into out of fear of repercussions on her career or reprisals against her father um there is actually no information that she provided any um, intelligence to the Hungarian secret police or was actually active as an agent. She was just listed as one. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that she was working in science in a totalitarian communist country at that time in history. I suspect probably everyone in her university had been approached and sort of bullied into being, at least on the face of it, an asset for the secret police at that time. There's no indication at all that she did anything that hurt anybody. So let's be clear about that, because I have seen some headlines that are um, unpleasant, shall we say. Anyway, uh, her lab at the BRC lost its funding in 1985. And so Carico, as you would, started to look for work in other countries. She was offered a research position um, by uh, a guy called Robert J. Nick I think is how you pronounce that, of the Temple University in the USA. And so Kariko left Hungary for the United States with her husband and her two year old daughter. Uh, and also £900 smuggled inside her daughter's teddy bear that they'd received by selling their car because she was not allowed to do that. Uh, you weren't allowed to take money out of Hungary at the time, so she sold her car, bought British sterling pounds on the black market, stitched them up in her daughter's teddy, and legged it to the States. And so, between 1985 and 1988, Carico was a postdoctoral fellow at Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, here, she participated in a clinical trial in which patients with uh, AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, uh, and Chronic fatigue syndrome and other hematologic diseases um, were treated with double strand RNA or dsRNA. At the time, this was completely groundbreaking research because the molecular mechanism of um, interferon induction by dsRNA, and I'm reading that from my notes, which I took from a couple of articles. On this character. I don't really know what interferon does. I've heard of it, um, but I, please understand, I am in no way an expert on any of this. Um, but the work, basically, she was involved in research that was groundbreaking at the time, uh, and a, an awful lot of stuff that we now understand was not understood then. They had understood the antiviral effects of interferon, and I think interferon was already being used as a treatment for HIV at this point in the 1980s. Uh, but anyway, she was involved in that very, very early in her career in the US. Between 1988 and 1989, she worked at the universe, the, the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bath, Cedar, Um where she worked with signal protein interferons. And again, I vaguely know what interferon is, uh, but I, I, I can't explain that to you. You may wish to Google it for further information. In 1989, she was hired by the University of Pennsylvania uh, to work with a cardiologist called Elliot Barnathan, uh, who was working on messenger RNA. So this is where her work on mRNA starts. At the beginning of the 90s, she was an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Perelman School of Medicine, uh, and she submitted there her first grant application in which she proposed establishing mRNA-based gene therapy. And ever since then, mRNA based therapies have been her primary research interest. In the 90s, mRNA was falling out of favor with research, uh, the, the research community. Uh, many biotech and pharmaceutical companies were looking at it and going, yeah, we, we don't think this has got much potential. Um, and so, Coeco found it difficult to get funding for her work even though she had support from Elliot uh, Barnathan uh, and a a guy called David Langer who hired her after uh, Barnathan left the University of Pennsylvania in 1997. Uh, She was on track to become a full professor um, but because her grant applications kept getting rejected she was effectively demoted by the university in 1995. But she chose to remain there anyway and continue with her research. It was in 1997 that she met Drew Weissman, uh, who was a professor of uh, immunology who had recently turned up at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, They started to exchange ideas and then that became a full collaboration. And Weissman critically had funding, which obviously is hugely helpful and helped Kerry to continue and extend even her research. Together, they began to move the technology forwards, um, taking on each problem as it presented itself one at a time and eventually starting to gain recognition for the progress that they were making. Uh, Weissman has said that they had to fight the entire way. Um, but it's, it's Curico's persistence that people noted as completely exceptional and against the norm of academic research work conditions. Now, think about that for a second, because all academics have to fight for their funding. All academics have to be pretty darned tenacious if they're going to make sure that their funding continues. Uh, and she is regarded as more tenacious than usual. This is a woman who fought her ground, it didn't just stand her ground, she fought it. And she took new ground, if we're going to continue that metaphor. Before 2005, a major problem that they hadn't found a way around in the proposed therapeutic use of mRNA uh, was that in vivo use led to inflammatory reactions. In vivo means uh, in a living thing. Um, A key insight was was realised. When Carrico focused on why transfer RNA, um, which was being used as a control in an experiment, was not provoking that same immune reaction as mRNA, that led to a series of really groundbreaking studies beginning in 2005, which demonstrated that while synthetic mRNA was seriously inflammatory, transfer RNA or tRNA wasn't. Cariko with Wiseman determined how specific nucleoside modifications in mRNA could lead to a reduced immune response. So learning from the structure of tRNA, how to change the structure of mRNA to reduce that immune response. Their finding of a chemical modification of mRNA to render it non-immunogenic, which means it won't trigger that um, inflammatory reaction, was initially rejected by journals. Uh, Nature and Science turned it down. Eventually, their public, their, their, their paper was accepted by the publication Immunity. They then together, Keriko and Weissman, founded a small co- company at R.N.A.R.X. Uh, is what it was called. And in 2006, they and again in 2000, uh, 2013, they received patents for the use of several modified nucleosides. Uh, in order to reduce antiviral immune response to mRNA. Not long after that, the University of Pennsylvania sold the intellectual property license to uh, a guy called Gary Dahl, who was head of a lab supply company that is now known as CellScript. The rest is kind of history. It was not all plain sailing even after that, but they had started to gain the recognition. Patents had been filed which means that pharmaceutical companies were now beginning to see that perhaps this was work that could lead to, let's be blunt, a saleable medicine that would be effective but also profitable because that is what drives pharmaceutical companies. That clearly isn't what drove Kariko or Weissman. Uh, I think they are both, in fact, to be congratulated hugely for their tenacity. Uh, Both are still working. This may be the pinnacle of both their careers. Uh, It may not. Keriko may go on to develop something else that's equally groundbreaking and equally beneficial. But if she doesn't, she's already saved however many lives it is. It's a lot. So talk about in Carico Carrico, uh, the next time you perhaps go and have your COVID jab or indeed any vaccine produced using mRNA, because without her work, in collaboration with Weisman, obviously, but without her work and her tenacity and her determination to see her work through, you would not have that possibility. So, unusually perhaps in this segment, huge thanks go to Professor Kathleen Carrico, thank you very much indeed. And so on we go, and we are running out of time, but I have time, I think, to do one comics recommendation. And we are now in October. And so comics are beginning to take a bit of a spookier direction than normal. And to that end, I would like to recommend to you the Midnight Show uh, by Colin Bunn, Brian Hurt, Bill Crabtree and Jim Campbell is from Dark Horse Comics. It will cost you $3.75 from Destination Venus or $3.50 if you ordered it in advance. And, you know, I'm feeling generous. Or if you order the rest of them in advance, I'll give you the first one at the cut price too. I know, I'm generous. What can I say? This is a monster comic. Uh, Colin Bunn is brilliant at writing horror comics. And this is one of the best of his that I have read for a while. Basically, the idea here is, once upon a time, there was a horror movie director who was working on his masterpiece. Perhaps the greatest horror movie of all time. Rather hubristically called God of Monsters. But during the filming, the studio caught fire, It burnt down. The horror writer director was never seen again. And the film itself was never seen until one night, perhaps tonight, when a horror film festival gets a copy of the print and shows the movie for the very first time anywhere. And at that point, strange things begin to happen, not just in the movie theatre. But in the town itself, because once that projector begins to whir, for reasons beyond the ken of mortal men, monsters once again walk the earth. It's huge fun. It's brilliant fun. Colin Bunn, as I say, great writer. The art here is absolutely in service to the storytelling It's beautifully done as we switch between the real world and the world of the film and the present and the past. It's all deliciously done. Uh, The characters are people you will recognise from your own life, from the dumb jock guy who just doesn't quite realise that the girl he's working with on the popcorn stand is flirting with him, to the slightly obsessive geeky boyfriend who's dragged his girlfriend along to yet another horror screening, to the bored and mostly forgotten horror film starlet, just sitting out the film and waiting to sell a few more autographed photos. The whole thing is beautifully rendered, beautifully realised, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. I am not normally, I keep saying this when I recommend horror comics, I am not normally a horror comic guy, but... This is not just a horror story, it is a story about horror. If you are a fan of the genre, then you're going to love this. I think I think anybody who really digs horror is going to love this story. So, check it out. As I say, it is from Dark Horse Comics, available at all good comic stores, including mine. But... As ever now, time's winged chariot draws ever nearer and we are almost out of time. There is so much I haven't had a chance to go over. I should probably talk less and be more concise, but that's never happened yet. So let's not get excited. Uh, we will have to leave it there. There's a whole bunch of stuff, as I say, that we have missed. We will hopefully get to that next week. Uh, until then, all that is left for me to do is tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production for Harrogate Community Radio and for itself also available streaming as a podcast we will see you next week same time same listening device unless you choose to use a different listening device and that's entirely up to you but until we do be kind to yourself be kind to everybody else and above all else stay geeky